Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become one of us, a witness to his, resurre to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Amen. Last week was our first sermon. And we mentioned briefly um, the ascension of Christ. And I just wanted to uh, recap a little bit concerning the ascension because it is a very important event. In fact, it is one of the most important and Powerful, impactful events in the history and life of the church. Other than the resurrection of Christ and other than the death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension carries with it more impact than anything else does upon the Christian and the Christian life. In fact, along with the uh, uh, resurrection and, and Pentecost, Ascension Day was one of the very first holy days recognized and uh, celebrated by the early church. It is generally celebrated uh, approximately 40 days after we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And even this year, uh, Ascension Day for a lot of churches around the world falls on May 29th. 2014. 
Churches long believed that it is very important and understood it to be a very important event in God's redemptive plan and the kingdom of God upon the earth. And even though here at East Point Church we don't formally celebrate Ascension Day, we do want to recognize the importance and significance of that event. As we saw last week, when Jesus ascended from the earth and went back to heaven, beloved, he went back to a place of power. He went back to a place of authority. He went to heaven where there now he rules and he reigns over the nations. He went to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives, the Bible says, to make intercession for us. You do understand, because Jesus has ascended back to the Father, we now have an advocate in heaven. One who is like unto us, because he lived as we lived. He walked as we walked. And now we have him in heaven, sympathizing, the Bible says, with our infirmities and our weaknesses, pleading our case. Standing, sitting before the throne of the Father. Advocating for us. you understand that the, the reason that our prayers have any type of efficacy in heaven is because as they go up, Jesus grabs them, takes them, forms them, and fashions them into a, 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 a mode in which the Father can say yes because Christ, he is ever living in heaven, making intercession for us. He prays with and he prays for us. How important the ascension is. And this is what the disciples left as they leave Mount of Olives. And make their way back into Jerusalem. It was the Mount of Olives where Jesus was taken up into heaven. Where he ascended. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. It was a familiar retreat place for Jesus and his disciples. It was a place where he often gathered with his disciples. Where he went to pray. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 25, the Bible tells us that here he preached the Olivet Discourse on the mount called Olivet. It is from here that he looked out over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. And the Bible says that he wept over Jerusalem, praying that she would come to him. Did that from the Mount of Olives. It is here following the Last Supper as Jesus dismissed his disciples that the Bible says that when they finished, they went out, sung a hymn, went out to the Mount of Olives. It is from that mountain that Jesus last set his feet upon the earth as he was ascended into heaven. And according to Zechariah 14 and 4, it shall be upon that mountain that our Lord sets his feet once again. 
that's where the disciples left. That glorious place. You would think you would just want to stay there. But that's not what God called them to do. They got to go back to Jerusalem where all the heathens are. And so they make their way from the Mount of Olives back into the city. And upon returning to Jerusalem, the text tells us that they, they gathered in that place where Jesus and his disciples shared that last meal together. They gathered in the upper room. And gathered in that upper room were some familiar people. The Bible tells us that all of the apostles were there. Peter and James and John and Andrew and Bartholomew and Thomas and and all the rest. And also Luke tells us that along with those disciples there were the women. The women. No doubt these were the women who were frequently with Jesus counted among his disciples as he made his way around Palestine and Judea. Names are probably familiar ones, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and of course, Mary, our Lord's mother. No doubt as we, as we follow the timeline that Luke has for us as he wrote the Gospel of Luke and remember that he wrote, he wrote Acts 2, then we can see that he's probably referring to those women that he frequently mentioned. Those women who in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2 provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. No doubt these were the women who were first present at the empty tomb and the first ones to go out and proclaim to the other disciples the resurrection of the Lord. You read Luke's gospel and you get a a sense of the prominent place that women played in the ministry of Jesus. And then you can understand going into Acts, the prominent place that women will play in the early church as well. Gathered among those disciples. Luke reminds us the apostles and indeed the women. 120 of them in all. And what are they doing? The Bible says in verse 14, And all these were with one accord devoting themselves to what? Prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer. This is an interesting statement as far as I am concerned. I hope it's interesting to you that you would contemplate it for a moment that here they are, these 120, the apostles in particular, gathered together. And what are they doing as they are waiting on the next move of God? The Bible says that they prayed. This interesting fact is that when you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, what you discover is that the disciples don't seem to really be paragons of prayer, beloved. You read through the Gospels, and you see that Jesus prayed often. However, there is no record of the disciples actually gathering together and praying. 
even in Mark chapter 14 and verse 38, when Jesus seems to tell them to do so, they fall asleep. And yet after the ascension, prayer would become the cornerstone of the ministry that God has called them to. They would become prayer warriors. And we see that in our text. For now, the Bible says, having left Jesus, they gather together in the upper upper room. And what do they do? They devote themselves to prayer. This is not incidental. This is not occasional for the word. Their devote literally means that they are doing this intentionally, continually, fervently, giving themselves to prayer, constant in prayer. Why? What made them do this? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but I would venture at least two things can be inferred from the text. The first is that they were not sure what to do. Jesus has told them to go into Jerusalem and wait. They lacked knowledge. They lacked understanding of what was really going on. And so while they waited, they prayed. Now, I don't know about your life, beloved, but I know in my life, it just seems the less I know, the more I pray. The more I know, the less I pray. The more I have things figured out, the more I know how things are going to go and should go, and I know the direction that things go in, I usually don't pray much. But it's when I lack understanding, I lack knowledge, I lack the ability to discern what is going to happen next, what's going to be around the corner that I give myself fervently in prayer. It is a testimony of a lack of faith, it's a testimony of a lack of obedience, but it's the truth. And I won't ask for hands this morning. But perhaps that's why God keeps us in the dark sometimes. Perhaps that is why God keeps us in the dark. Perhaps that's why God has not given you all the directions in your life that he wants you to go. Perhaps that's why he hasn't revealed every moment and instance that you should know is going to happen in your life. It is so that you would give yourself to praying to him. Perhaps that's why he has you waiting. So that you would call upon his name. And take confidence and trust in him. And so it is with the disciples. Why do they pray? What else are they going to do? They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. Praise God. And so they pray. And they pray. And they pray. But I think there's a second reason that they pray. There's a second reason that they pray, and I think the second reason is akin and related to the first. Because you see, there's an elephant in the room. There's an elephant in the room. All the brothers and sisters are there, 120 in all. All of the apostles are there except for one glaring exception. Everybody knows who it is. We're all here except one. They all knew what happened. Perhaps nobody really wanted to talk about it. 
Everybody was afraid to discuss it. Not sure in what to make of it. But we're all here. Except one. Judas. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. What do you think about Judas? I don't know. Let's pray. <laughs> what happened to Judas? I don't know. I don't know. Let's just pray. Because I thought it was you. <laughs> so let's pray. <laughs> All right. No one dared mention it, beloved, but instead they prayed, and yet something needed to be said. Something needed to be done. And after praying, the Bible says that Peter spoke up. And in speaking up, what he did was he revealed two important things to us about the disciples and the ongoing ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts. Two things. And the first one is their trust in God's word. And the second one is their trust in God's will. You see their trust in God's word as Peter begins to speak. Beloved, you know, Judas, Judas is an enigma. He really is. He is difficult. You contemplate it long enough. He is, he is difficult for us to really understand. You ask yourself, what was he thinking all those years that he was walking with Jesus and the other disciples? Did he plan to betray Jesus from the beginning? Or is this a plan, a scheme that was hatched just at the end? Did he enjoy the fellowship of Jesus and the other disciples? And was his hypocrisy evident from the very beginning, but all of the other disciples were blind to it? Jesus, if, if Judas is hard for us to grasp, beloved, how much more so do you think it was for the other apostles? To really try to understand Judas, because for them, Judas was a huge disappointment. And yet notice, and notice what Peter does. Notice how. Peter reminds them to put their trust in God's word rather than men. For he says in verse 16, as he stands up, he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. He wants to put this in, he wants to put Judas and his understanding of Judas in the context of God's word. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. In other words, let's go to the word of God and see what the word of God has to say. What does the word of God say? Well, People are often fond of asking the question, could Judas 
have chosen not to betray Jesus? Well, the simple answer to that question is no, beloved. No. Not if, as Peter says, the scriptures were to be fulfilled. If that is the case, then Judas had to betray Jesus. Be like asking if Mary could refuse to give birth to Jesus. He'd be like asking if Jesus could have been born somewhere else other than Bethlehem. Be like asking if Jesus could refuse to go to the cross. Refuse to be raised on the third day. These things are according to God's word, as difficult as they are for us to get our mind around and to understand them and to place them in the context of our finite thinking. Here is what the scripture shouts to us over and over again. God's will is sovereign and our will is subject. So it is again here. But what we see here is evidence that the disciples saw the need to put all things in the context of God's sovereign word, even the difficult ones. Even the difficult ones. Notice what Peter says. Peter Peter says, in essence, believe it or not, brothers, the Bible tells us about Judas. David said in Psalm 41 and verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Notice, this is what the Bible says, the Spirit of God spoke through David. The Spirit of God spoke through David. David, making the Holy Spirit author of divine word. Inspiring David to to write Psalm 41. This is interesting that Peter would would use those words because it says to us that while they waited on what the Spirit was going to say, they looked and listened for what the Spirit had already said. That, that, that is instructive, beloved. That is real instructive for us. For too many of us go around every day looking and listening for a new word from God and haven't yet looked into what he has already said. Before we seek, before Holy Spirit comes, that for which we are waiting, and speak to us. Let us search what he has already said and find some direction there. And that is what Peter does. Unfortunately, what I find is that most of us really don't want to know what God has already said. fact remains, however, that whatever situation you find yourself in, beloved, there is a word from the Lord. 
It is there in his scripture. If you would be diligent enough to search it out, if you would be discerning enough to listen, it's there. Unfortunately, those who speak the word often are ostracized in our conversation. Somebody speaks a word of God right from the scriptures. They would, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says this. Oh, we don't want to hear that. No. No, because then we have to be brought up subject to the word of God. We don't want the old word. We're waiting on a new word. I find that people are made to feel guilty simply for being bold enough to assume that God has said something and is right. Imagine that. This is also a word to us here that you should not expect the Holy Spirit to say anything different than what he has already said. Oh, man, a lot of people are just waiting around for God to contradict something that he said in the Bible. Sitting around waiting for somebody to bring you a new revelation that's going to surpass what God has already said. Here the Bible reminds us, beloved, that the Holy Spirit is not going to come and contradict something that he's already said. So if you do supposedly get a new word from somewhere, you need to go check it. By the word that has already been revealed. Well, the only way you can do that is if you're in the word that has already been revealed. Peter stands up and says, brothers, the scriptures tell us what happened to Judas. You don't need to sit around here and wonder. The scriptures tell us. If we would be diligent enough to seek it. Notice what he says. About Judas. One that Judas fulfilled the scriptures. But two. That Judas shared in the ministry. This is this is amazing. Because. It was their understanding of God's sovereign word that allowed them to begin to understand who Judas really was. It is not sitting around trying to understand Judas. They sought to understand what God's word said. And that allowed them to then understand who Judas was and what he did. He shared in the ministry. He shared in the ministry. He was no stranger. Notice what Peter says. He was numbered among us and was allotted a share in this ministry. In other words, he said to them, I know this is difficult. I know this is hard to understand because he was among those like us chosen by Christ to be with us. 
He was part of the fellowship. He had his portion and he had his share in the ministry of the disciples, beloved. He participated in the ministry, didn't he? When they were feeding the 5,000, what do you think Judas was doing? He was helping to pass out the food. He was helping to collect it. He shared in the ministry. When they went about preaching and and teaching that Jesus sent them out, what do you think Judas was doing? He was sharing in the preaching. He was sharing in the teaching. When they went about healing the sick and casting out demons, what do you think Judas was doing? He was healing. He was sharing in the ministry. He was taking authority over demons. He participated in the ministry. But he not only participated, beloved, he witnessed. He witnessed the person of Christ. He was there. He was there when Jesus turned the water into wine. He was there. He was there when Jesus walked upon the water. He was there. He was there when Jesus healed the blind man. He was there when Jesus raised folks from the dead. He was there when Jesus calmed the raging seas. He was there. He saw it all. He saw Christ in all of his power. He participated and shared in the ministry that was the disciples. And yet, in verse 25, some of the saddest words you'll ever read in the Bible. Just says very simply, Judas turned aside. He turned aside from the glorious participation that he was granted. He turned aside from seeing the miraculous works of Christ and the power of God in Christ Jesus. Judas turned aside from the mission that Christ had given to the disciples and the blessed privilege that they had. In his presence, Judas turned aside. You know, beloved, the Bible reminds us that false professors can have a great portion in the ministry and even in the church. They can can sing, they can serve, they can pray. They can preach. And yet isn't Jesus himself who reminds us in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who claims 
to preach in my name and to cast out demons in my name will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because activity does not equal eternal life. A sober reminder to us this morning. Activity does not equal eternal life. Presence in the community does not guarantee your salvation. Judas is a reminder to me, beloved, that apart from the grace and mercy of God, my life would be a betrayal of my Savior. Apart from Jesus praying for me as my advocate in heaven at the right hand of the Father, apart from his holy and high priestly ministry on my behalf, my heart would wander and go astray. You know what the Bible says, interestingly enough? When Peter was tempted to go astray, Jesus says, Peter, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. And when, Jesus says, when you repent, you go strengthen the brothers. And here he is. You know when Judas was tempted? You know what Jesus said? What you do, go do it quickly. And that was the end of that. He did not pray for Judas. There's the difference, beloved. That's the difference between you and the apostate. That's the difference between you and the one who turns aside from the things of Christ. That is the difference. It's not your activity. It is Christ and his ever-living intercession for you. He prays for you. That's why you're saved. That's why you shall have eternal life because Jesus prays for you. The only reason, beloved. The only one. Peter reminds them that Judas was according. He fulfilled the scripture. He shared in the ministry and he received his reward. Judas received his reward. Don't be saying to the apostles and the others gathered there, listen. Judas was according to the word of God. And even though he shared in the ministry that was allotted to all of us, he turned aside and he received his reward. Judas's fate was according to the scriptures, verse 17, so that he bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. 
the reward of his wickedness. And verse 25 says he went to his own place. You know, when, when, when someone dies, one of the euphemisms, euphemisms we use for death is that that person has gone to his or her reward. What we say, because we don't like to say people died. And so we say things like, well, they passed away. Or he or she has gone to their reward. Well, indeed, beloved. Indeed, whether you are faithful or faithless, there is a day of reward coming. And in Psalm 91 and verse 8, the Bible says that the wicked shall be rewarded. The wicked shall be recompensed for their wickedness. And Judas, what he did was forfeit his share among the disciples, and thus he had his share among the wicked. The faithless, whom the Bible says in Revelation 21 and 8, will have their share in the lake. That burns eternal fire. There's the reward of the faithless. There's the recompense for the wicked. You know what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27? That is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And all of us, every human being at some point is going to stand in judgment before Christ himself. To receive their recompense, to receive their reward. And while the gospel, beloved, is not simply fire insurance, it must at least be fire insurance. (laughs) If the gospel is rightly understood, it is the gospel that keeps me from going to the lake of fire. You don't hear it much, but it's true. If my portion is not the portion of the wicked in the fire that burns for eternity, it is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My trust in him and him alone. Yeah, the gospel is more than just a fire insurance. But it's never less than that, beloved. It is never less than that. And you'll be glad on that day that it was at least that. And so it was for Judas. Peter said he received the reward of his wickedness. And he went to his own place. What shall be your reward? What shall be your recompense on that day that you see the Lord? What shall be your hope? Where shall it be placed? You see what Peter's doing here as he's standing up amongst the Disciples and and the apostles. He is demonstrating his trust and then their trust in the word of God. 
He goes to the Word to seek to explain what has happened. But not only does he trust in the Word of God, you see their trust in the will of God. Because Judas not only had to be explained according to God's Word, but Judas had to be replaced. And this is going to happen according to God's will. You see that? According to God's will. Verses 21 through 26, and replacing Judas, the, the apostles not only trusted in God's word, but also in the will of God. And as they talk amongst themselves, two men are set forth, Matthias and Barsabbas. Notice, notice the elements of the choice. There's three elements to this choice that they have to make as they seek to distinguish between these two gentlemen. Notice the qualification, right? He gives the qualification for the choice. He says, well, first they must be called by Christ. They must have been called by Christ to be in our midst. One of the men, they must be one of the men who have accompanied us during all the days that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the day when he was taken up. They've had to have their share and portion in this ministry, like all of us have. Had to have been there from the beginning. This is not a self-appointment. This was not going to be according to a popular vote. This man must have been called by Christ to be amongst the fellowship. And he must have evidenced this by walking with us from the very beginning. From the time that Jesus was baptized, he had to be among us. This reminds us then, beloved, that though we are told that Jesus was surrounded by the 12 apostles, there were more than just the 12 following faithfully after Jesus. There were groups of people, faithful disciples of Christ, following Christ wherever he went. Seeking to know him, to trust him. To live with him. And so we see here there must be this one who heard Jesus teach. Someone who witnessed the power of God in Christ. Someone who heard the voice of Jesus saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Someone who, like a sheep, heard the voice of the shepherd say, come, and they followed. Someone, someone, someone. That's the qualification. He had to be called by Christ to be in their midst. But that can't be all the qualification, can it? Because Judas could say that. That was the problem. You could be in the midst of the fellowship. You can claim to have been called by Christ. You can share in the ministry. You can sing all the songs. You can volunteer to pray. You can get trained to preach. 
I can't be all of it. That's the reason we got the problem in the first place. So it's beyond, it's beyond just the call of Christ here. It's not just the qualification that they need. They didn't stop there, did it? No, he said, now that these two fit those qualifications, notice the determination. What do they do? They cast lots. <laughs> they needed more than just the qualification. They needed God to make a determination. And so after praying, what did they do? They do what we always do, Terrence. They cast lots. Really? They pulled straws. They, they took the coin out and they flipped it. Heads or tails, Matthias. They did rock, paper, and scissors over and over and over and over and over again. Best two out of three. You know, beloved, this was a common practice during their days. You know that, don't you? You remember that when we went through Jonah? And the men on the ship with Jonah trying to determine why has God brought this storm upon us? Who is responsible for this storm? In and, 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 and Jonah chapter 1, in order to determine who had brought this storm, who was the one? The Bible says that the men on the ship cast lots. And beloved, that's all lots, lots were. That's all it was. It was a, it was a throwing of, of dye. It was a drawing of, of straws. It was really, as we might say, a flipping of a coin. It's really just the casting of, of, of a dye. They'd have a, they'd have a rock and, and they'd put it. Have some small stones and pebbles, and they put somebody's name on it. They'd have two of them, and they put them in a, in a jar or something, and they just shake them and shake them and shake them until one came out. And the one that came out, they'd believe that's the one God has chosen. Try that next time you're trying to discern who to go out with. This guy here, got this guy here. Put them in the can and shake it up. Heads is you, tails is you. Well, we don't engage in such activity. I hope not anyway. And this is not a commendation to engage in such activity. Though it was a common practice in their day, it spoke to a greater principle that we need to understand, and that is that they trusted in the sovereignty of God. They believed, they sincerely believed that not only could God intervene, but God would intervene. We cast lots because we, don't, that, because we doubt, and so we're we looking for something lucky. They weren't casting lots trying to be lucky. They weren't playing the lottery, hoping to get rich. No, beloved. It was a sign to them that they trusted in the sovereign providence of God. Let your will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. 
It is the idea that we are willing to accept the will of God, whatever it be. It's not rocking science, beloved. It's, it's not sophisticated. They just trusted God, that God would and could intervene in their lives. And that's how they determined it. And notice, after the, after the determination and after the qualification, notice the obligation. Because you do know, you do realize that Matthias didn't hit the lottery. No, 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 no. If you want to be one, I, I choose Barsabbas. You say, why? Because of the obligation. Notice what the disciples said. They chose Matthias. And guess what, Matthias? There's a strong obligation that comes along with this. You, this one, these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. It's going to become a witness. The Greek word there is martyros. It is a word from which we get martyr. Matthias, welcome to the band of those called to die. Welcome. You think you hit the lottery ticket? No, sir. You just signed your death warrant, my friend. You just signed your death warrant. For it would be laid upon him to give his life. For the sake of Christ. You do understand that the mission was clear. The call to be an apostle was the call to die. It's what it was. Contrary to our idea of apostles today, beloved. The call to be an apostle was a call to be a witness, was a call to be a martyr, was a call to die. You do understand that in the early church, there was no such thing as prosperity gospel. It just wasn't there. There were no prosperity churches. You don't find the disciples living large, lavish, rich lifestyles. The call to be an apostle was a call to lay down your life and die. It was a call to lose everything in order to gain Christ. I know prosperity churches here. The call to be a martyr, the call to be a witness of the resurrection was a call to die. And we know that because we know what happened to the apostles. James, killed by the sword. Peter, crucified like his Lord. Andrew, crucified as well. Philip, 
tortured, Matthew hacked to death, John exiled, Paul beheaded. And the list goes on and on and on. This is what Matthias signed up for. When the lot fell on you, it may as well have fallen on your head, Matthias. But guess what? You're going to lose your head, but you're going to gain Christ. And you're going to find that he's more than anything than you ever lost. Here's the question. Have you been called to be a witness of the resurrection? Because in a real sense, if you are saved this morning, beloved, really saved, I'm not talking about those who profess him. I'm not talking about those just singing on Sunday and living like hell all week long. I'm talking about those who are really saved then the lot has fallen on you this morning. You've been called to be a witness, to sacrifice and to give up your life for Christ. Really? Really? Is that you? Is that you? Your life should be then on a similar mission for Anyone who would follow after Christ, Jesus says, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Follow me and be willing at any moment to get up on that cross and sacrifice your own self. Your own feelings, your own pleasures, your own lusts, your own desires. So that you might be a witness to who Jesus is. Christ is. Every day, beloved, every day, the Christian is called to die just a little bit more to self and to live just a little bit more for Christ. Every day. Until that day when you find that there is no more self. And there is only Jesus. At that time, you're gone. You're gone. You're gone. You'll be in the presence of the one for whom you died and now live. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's it. When he called me, my life was no longer my own. It belongs to him. And every moment of every day, I need to be asking him the same question that Paul asked him when he called Paul. When he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? Because, really, when it comes down to it, if you're really saved, you realize that all you have is Christ. That's all. That's all. That's all I really got to testify to. 
is Christ. He is my life. That's what the disciples understood. This is what Matthias came to realize. This is what all of us who are called by Christ must come to see. I'm not my own, but I belong to him. And all I have is Christ. And he is, he is my life. Let's pray.